1: and welcome to a Weekend Review episode of The Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. We've got four games to discuss today, two from Europe, two from England. uh, To help me do that, that was meant to be a Brexit joke, I think, I'm not sure. To help me make sense of those four (laughs) games, I'm joined by Ryan Bailey. Ryan, good to have you here. Uh, Good to speak to you too, Tay-Tay. How are you doing? I'm doing as best as a person could be, I think, um, and we should kind of address that up front. Yes, my my introduction is maybe a bit more cheerful than I am currently feeling uh, because of the loss of Daryl Grove on Friday, or Thursday evening, uh, the response to which has been really, really incredible, and I would just like to take a moment to thank everyone for the many, many, many messages expressing their love and admiration and respect for our friend. Um, it It really was like this thing every weekend, like over the weekend of reading these messages that are so thoughtful and meaningful about how Daryl connected to people. It simultaneously is like ripping the band off every single time when you read those, but it is also really nice to know how many people he affected and how his kind of memory lives on. So that's been really, really nice. I would still like to, uh, I plan to respond to everyone when I can. Apologies in advance if that takes a while. I will let Ryan speak again, but I also uh, <laughs> wanted to mention something else that occurred to me over the weekend. Uh, I apologize that it only occurred to me this weekend, but we still have people sending in scouting reports and asking listener questions and supporting the show via the the uh, subscriber network. And We haven't really been able to do as much of that because of Daryl's health, because he and I are the ones who tend to read the scouting reports, tend to answer the listener questions. That's been on the back burner a little bit. I would like to bring that back in the near future. Ryan and I did a listener question show a couple weeks ago, I believe it was, and I I thought that was pretty fun. So I think we're going to try to start doing scouting reports, listener questions again in the near future. Maybe not this week, uh, but very, very soon, probably with myself and Mr. Bailey. Speaking of Ryan Bailey, (laughs) my final thing I'd like to say, up front, um, is to thank you, Ryan. Uh, We had a tweet over the weekend from Zach Bruin, uh, who thanked you for filling in on Mondays to allow Daryl time to focus on his health. I'm going to try not to get overly emotional here. Um, And that is 100% the reason why Ryan started appearing. And I don't really know if I said that, I think because at the time it felt maybe a little bit uncomfortable or I didn't want to put Daryl's business in the street. But recording these shows, it takes a lot of effort because it's not just the recording process. It's watching all the games and then sometimes rewatching the games and reading articles about these games to figure it all out. It, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. And that's kind of work and time that Daryl didn't really have. He didn't really have that energy. And Ryan taking over just immediately without delay really did allow Daryl to relax, enjoy his soccer over the weekend, not have it feel like a chore – and I think that really meant a lot to him. I know it meant a lot to me. So I would just like to say thank you to Ryan for for that. And on that note, Ryan, I will stop talking and just say thank you.
2: Uh, that's very kind of you. Those kind words, Taylor. And I'll say offer my condolences to Daryl's family and friends, condolences to you. And I, I, I give you credit for today, Taylor, getting on the microphone today. And I, I think you deserve credit for doing that. I'm really pleased to talk to you today. Um I Thanks, first man. got to know you and Daryl. It was 2016. I had to look it up because it's 2016. Hmm. Seems like quite a long time ago. We did a, a podcast with Howler called The Goalmouth." Do you remember that, Taylor? <laughs> it's a,
1: a long, long time ago, but yes, it it's is. a long time ago. <laughs> so we did a daily
2: podcast. We'd discuss a soccer story or a number of soccer stories every day, and yeah. George Koreshi would discuss uh, HBO shows like Pope. <laughs> that was mainly uh, what we did. And we were, uh, we, we've been friends ever since then. And it, caught, it sort of emphasizes that soccer media in this country is a very tight-knit community everybody knows each other you know it's a big country Mm -hmm. but there's not that many of us doing what we do and I think that's kind of uh, that's been reflected in the overwhelming way that the community has come together uh, in light of this news to support each other and you know when when a soccer media people meet up at events like if I don't know Adidas releases a boot or there's MLS Cup or something it, it, it always feels to me Taylor I don't know if you feel this it feels like you're you're back from college yeah. for Thanksgiving, and you're back in your hometown, mm-hmm. and you're seeing people, and you're kind of catching up. Then we we did that back in February. We met in New York, uh, you, you Daryl, and I. Um, this was like a year after Daryl's diagnosis, mm. and he was just on top form. It's great company, gleaning his eye. We were at the bar till far, far too late that <laughs> night, and that's that was a really good a really good night we had out in New York. And you know, I, was, I was still I still can't believe this has happened. Yeah. It, it's very sad. It's not fair. It's a reminder that the universe isn't fair, isn't it? And I I don't know. I I, I was thinking, I was thinking about the, um, the Jurgen Klopp quote earlier, Taylor. He says, soccer's the most important of the least important things. (laughs) And when I'm kind of down on myself and I think, oh, my job doesn't matter. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a doctor. I'm not actually making a difference in the world. But, then we've got this game that we talk about and we talk about it with people and we've got a community here and we know how, much, how important Daryl was to that community and how he helped this community so much. So if I get one bit of solace, one quantum of solace, to use bond terminology, <laughs> it's the joy that Daryl brought. It's the, it's the way he made my life better. He made our lives better, you know, both personally and through sharing the love of this game with everybody. So thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, listeners. That's it. I'll be quiet now.
1: No, um,
2: that, that means a lot. And that has been,
1: I said this last week, but I think it's, it, it still is the case that it's, it's easy to forget that people are listening and and what you say matters. And especially what Daryl said, I think mattered to a lot of people and the way he said it mattered to a lot of people. So that, that has been, that has been a very nice thing at a, at a not nice time. Um, with that in mind, I should note that, uh, I, I will plan to keep everybody updated about, uh, things they can do for Daryl if there are services or anything like that. Um, Down the road, when group get-togethers are allowed, ideally that's going to happen sometime in the future, I think I'm going to try to do some sort of like benefit game. I'm not sure where. I'm going to try to do some sort of get-together or maybe a couple different ones just so people can talk about him a bit more because it's a strange time right now. It's weird to mourn and not feel like you can hug people and and things like that, so I'd rather hold off until people can uh, appropriately... Uh, celebrate Daryl Grove. Uh, And until then, we're going to keep doing the show. It's going to be a little different, obviously. (laughs) It's going to be a lot different, obviously. Um, The structure is going to change a little. My wife and I have a baby coming, so there are going to be some times when I'm not on the show, but we're going to kind of set up a structure to have different people on. But I would like to rededicate the show, or really just clarify to people that uh, I I would like to refocus on why things happened and not that they happened. I think sometimes it's good to have a blend of both, But one of the things that I've heard kind of so consistently this weekend has been that the focus on breaking down games and explaining what happened – and not just screaming about VAR is what made people love this show in the first place. And I just want to make sure that we continue to honor that so that there will be times when we have to talk about VAR or controversial decisions or weird things that happened. Don't get me wrong. But I also just want to make sure that we kind of keep that emphasis, especially when it comes to the U.S. national team and those types of games, uh, which is something I plan to do. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping everybody else who appears on this show does as well. I know Ryan does. So with that in mind, shall we discuss the events of this weekend that we Related Ryan Bailey?
2: Let's do that no. with only a very light sprinkling of VAR because that's the way I like it. I don't <laughs> like too much VAR either. I'm, I'm with you there. I think we probably have to start with Man City West
1: Ham. Just kidding. We're going to start with El Clásico, obviously. Uh, El Clásico finished maybe not the way a lot of people expected. Barcelona losing at home 3 to 1. Not necessarily a comprehensive victory for Real Madrid, but a very, very important one. But I think it was also a Classico that I was like excited to watch, less so for the obvious reasons that we've already discussed, but also because it feels a little bit like a different Classico than we've had in years past. And I'm wondering, to start, Ryan, if you had that same feeling heading in.
2: Yeah, I think usually in Classico's years gone by, it's a real build-up from a few days earlier because you know when you turn on the TV, you're going to have that full stadium. It's going to be riotous. It's going to be foul, fouls going everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a really high-octane event. And when it's in an empty stadium, it doesn't quite have that same sheen, mm-hmm. I think. This is the first closed-door Classico they've ever had, obviously. Um, and it got me thinking, and I think I saw some editorial about this a few days ago, is, has the Classico... Lost its shine. Is it as good as it used to be? And I was kind of wondering whether maybe this is just very recent history is making me feel this way because, you know, it had a. I don't think the Classico has been truly great in a few years. There was a, a sort of nil nil last season. And then you look at. The these two teams and where they are currently. And maybe even if we look at where La Liga is currently, is it is it still the top dog? Are these two teams still the top dog in Europe? I'm not convinced that's that's true. We know that Barcelona have got an awful lot of issues and we watched the drama play out last season with them, with Messi, you know, their star player barely even wants to play for them at the moment. And Real Madrid, uh, whose star player has missed an awful lot of games I'm referring to Eden Azar in that Mm -hmm. instance and you know they they seem like they're sort of on the downturn of their arc if that makes sense and you know the Spanish club spent one billion euros less than the Premier League uh, in the last window which is fair enough because there's only a few who can spend that big but you know we've got two titans here who both have relatively poor showings in the champions league one going out in the first knockout round the other one getting pretty tanked uh last uh <laughs> last last time around and and this game itself leo messi is I, I was shocked to read it's been over 900 days since he scored in a classico as well so i was wondering what you thought am i just being debbie downer on this one or is this still an electrifying event as it deserves to be
1: I'm going to try not to say things can be two things multiple times this episode. (laughs) Uh, So what I will instead say is... Like, I I don't think you're being a downer. I think you're being realistic. And and I think it's a strange reality of neither of these teams looks like the dominant team or one of the dominant teams in Europe right now. And so we're Mm -hmm. used to Classicos that are Messi versus Ronaldo, or they're, you know, they're going to meet four times in the next three weeks because they've got two Copa del Rey semifinals and then they've also got a Champions League fixture and then like Elite. Like, we're used to them being involved in so many competitions so late. That these two teams right now, it's less about like, how are they fitting all this talent onto the team? How are they going to balance going deep in so many competitions? It's more of can they put talent on the field or as much talent as they want? Can they figure this out? There are so many questions about both of these teams. And I talked with uh, Graham Ruffin about this last week a little bit that like normally we get a oh Barcelona are sort of having a down uh, turn in form right now. But Madrid are this dominant force or Madrid mm. are having some questions or Lopetegui's been sacked and we don't know what's going to happen next. And then Barcelona are dominant. And it's the first time that I can really remember where both teams have a lot of question marks. You talked about it with Aiden Hazard and how do they deal with him and his lack of time. Karim Benzema, I think, is still, like we've talked about this many times, one of their most important players. And you don't have necessarily that next generation coming through and setting the world alight. And then there is so many issues with Barcelona. I don't know if at time of recording, if Bartomeu is still there. I know that there was talk that maybe he was going to resign today. So I think that's a good indicator of the sort of chaos and uncertainty of both of these teams. And I think that that is Maybe a little bit of a downer, but it's a realistic point to start from, that these aren't the two teams that we expect to definitely be meeting in the Champions League semifinal or something like that. It's two teams that have a lot of issues to figure out, and we saw some of those issues on display this weekend. That's kind of my general summary of this game.
2: I think that's completely fair. And if you were to uh, point at the team who is the most issuisty issue-ist, team of the issuisty <laughs> teams, it's got to be Barcelona at this point, right? Certainly. Not only were they in the losing side here. Although I would say, I think it was exactly 50-50% possession here. The scoreline, mm. it doesn't quite reflect how this was quite an even game. But I think Barcelona were really let down by bad defending and several poor performances. Like on, on the first uh, mm. the first goal, the Valverde goal, um Sergio Busquets just—he yeah. he just seems too slow at the moment. He doesn't—he just casual jogging. He's, he's, he's Paul Pogbaing it all around the field. We'll get to him later. Uh, and there was uh, Longlade didn't really put in a challenge when uh, uh, when Viverdi was coming to the mm-hmm. box, and he could have done. And there was several instances in the game where I thought this is not world class defending we're seeing here. There was a there was an instance I think maybe in the last twenty minutes where Sergio Ramos was alone in the box and he hit a volley, and it, it, he didn't um, it didn't go in obviously, but there was. Lots of moments where Barcelona were half asleep, and it seemed like they didn't have much of a midfield going on. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Busquets I thought was poor. Longley didn't have a good game. Um, yeah, I couldn't really understand the formation either. I, I mean, I suppose it's supposed to be a four-two-three-one, but it looked like it wasn't very structurally sound if that
1: makes <laughs> yeah, sense. i mean like, i think the 421
2: they have a lot of freedom and they're all over the place you know and it was it yeah. was almost I, I i don't know what you think of that but that that didn't seem it didn't seem like they were terribly disciplined if that makes sense as well you would usually expect a 4-2-3-1 to be pretty like, okay, we know where everyone's going to be. It's pretty, not necessarily rigid,
1: but it's got a structure to it. And I'm with you that it was confusing at times to see their shape and and try to figure out what was going on. And I think a very good place to start, as you already have mentioned, is Sergio Busquets, because he's Mm. a player who historically I think of as being in the 4-3-3. He's sitting deeper than the other two central midfielders. He's kind of protecting that back line, not necessarily from a... Winning all the challenges and being a mobile ball winner, but just sort of retaining possession, being the outlet, always being very, very calm on the ball. Michael Cox wrote a very good article about this. I was sort of bitter because I screen capped the exact moment you're talking about with Valverde's run past Busquets and then realized that that was sort of the the thesis of Michael Cox's argument. He also screen capped it. But yeah, it's. Hmm. When I think it's the goal goes in at four minutes and forty nine seconds. At four minutes and forty four seconds, Busquets and Valverde are level. They're both yes. running. They are at the exact same like point. And five seconds later, there's a twenty yard gap because Busquets just can't track him. I don't think that's a thing that he does particularly well. I don't think he he tracks runners. I also don't think his partnership with Frankie De Jong is particularly solid in that kind of four two three one. Those two. And you could see that, that the two of them, their spacing was weird. They were getting pulled apart a lot. One would step out, then the other would step out, and suddenly there's this huge gap. So I take your point that it just seemed like Barcelona had an idea of what they wanted to do, but didn't quite understand how they were supposed to execute it in a way that limited options as opposed to opening up further ones for Real Madrid.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it was yeah, just a bit of lack of coherence in midfield, definitely. And Busquets, by the way, if he had have stayed... For those five seconds, or tried to stay with everybody, he wouldn't have done it because he, he's not going to win that foot race anyway. So you <laughs> could argue that it's a moot point anyway. But it just that that would just seem like there was some weakness there, and I don't know. I, I suppose Coutinho was okay, but I thought. Petri w- was pretty invisible. I don't mm. know why Dembele wouldn't have started maybe a- a- on that flank instead. Uh... I think I can jump in to say
1: I think, based on Ronald Kuman's substitution patterns or lack thereof, uh, <laughs> it speaks to a lack of faith in his depth. That though uh, Real Madrid get their go ahead goal, courtesy of a Sergio Ramos penalty, we'll talk about that in a second. Mm. That happens in like early 60th minute, I think, like 62nd minute. Kuman doesn't make a substitution until the 82nd minute. He sits on the subs, and I think it's because he doesn't really trust the players to come in and elevate the performance or change things up that felt more of a all right we're just going to throw some bodies on and hopefully something happens which is again not what you would expect from a barcelona manager in el Clásico.
2: no and uh do you think how much direction do you think Leonor messi takes because we know that he's takes he, he likes to sit deep but he was ridiculously deep yeah <laughs> for a lot of this game particularly i mean even when he set up the goal for the equalizer uh he was he was you know we've seen him play that pass many a time where he sort of bypassed four or five Real Madrid shirts to put the ball on for Fati and it was fantastic but I mean he's not uh, he doesn't run very fast he's not I I mean how's he covering all the ground if he's sitting that deep is I suppose my point there I think probably he isn't (laughs) and it just points to a sort of a slight lack of discipline I, I would I would contest
1: I mean, I think it depends on what he's being asked to do, because if he's being given that 10 roll and told go wherever you want, if it's like the Papu Gomez thing at Atalanta, uh-huh. then uh, like I think, I think it's fine because he's trying to create overloads. But I also take your point that if he is supposed to be the conduit through which the attack goes and he is dropping deep, even if it is to... Uh, get the MLS assist for a goal. Uh It's it's probably not necessarily what what is ideal for them. That said, he creates a couple of different chances. He cuts up Sergio Ramos pretty well. Thibaut Courtois with a great save. That goes yep. back to your point that though we are sort of ragging on Barcelona, it could have been closer. Barcelona could have been up two or three or maybe one or two goals in the first half. So. Though that sounds insane, like knowing the way this went, going back and watching, it was like in those first 15 or 20 minutes, a lot of back and forth like, oh, there's a shot there. Now there's a counterattack and a shot there. Now they've gone back the other way. It was more open, but I also think if Ronald Koeman doesn't trust his depth and trust his substitutes and maybe there isn't as much of a specific plan in place, at least at this point – Then letting the game be a little bit opening, get a little bit more stretched, it doesn't lend itself to finding a way to win, if anything, Mm -hmm. around Madrid with their depth and having a little bit more consistency can change things up, punish Barcelona for some of those vulnerabilities, and I would argue that's exactly what they do, and then Sergio Ramos does uh, Master of Dark Arts things as well, that never hurts.
2: Sergio Ramos doing the master of dark arts things, tell me yeah. more. <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting
1: because when you when you I'm um, uh, uh, re- referring of course to the penalty, uh, mm-hmm. which Real Madrid do get, which Sergio Ramos does dispatch because that's what he does now. Um I like to think that his penalty taking ability was a sort of like like a Faustian pact that was necessitated, that necessitated him growing a weirdly long but patchy beard. That was the deal. It's like you can score all the penalties, but you have to have odd facial hair. And he seems to have embraced it. But he goes up for uh, a cross, sort of throws himself to the ground, I would argue. Doesn't seem like the penalty is going to be given. Phil Shane, who was doing the commentary for B In, had the line uh, it was like he brought a knife and fork to that one, uh, which I thought was terrific. <laughs> And then you see it from one angle, and to their credit, both he and Ray Hutchinson were like, "Ooh, that's going to be a penalty," because from the reverse angle, his jersey is pulled. There is a full fistful of it in there. It limits his movement, and on with VAR. I think that's that is usually going to be given not always but Sergio Ramos is going to sell it and then get up and have some words and I think I'm not surprised it was given and I don't even think it was incorrect that it was given but it's just sort of the theatricality of it all uh was just a good reminder that Sergio Ramos is a is a great villain unless you're a Madrid fan in which case I'm guessing he's your hero
2: I'm joy I'm enjoying the imagery of uh Sergio Ramos meeting the devil at the crossroads, and the the, the pact they make is he has to grow a patchy beard. That's wonderful. It's <laughs> a less serious one the than crossroads, normal. Crossroads, <laughs> try to grow a beard. <laughs> Lovely stuff. I like that a lot. Um, but uh, to your point there on mm-hmm. on the penalty, what is Longley doing? Because that's always going to be given, isn't yeah. it? A shirt pulled that obvious when yeah. there are VAR. Uh, when there are VAR facilities in the game. And the curious thing was that Ronald Koeman absolutely railed against this. He was outraged that this was given. Why only VAR is used against Barcelona was kind of his thing in the post-match mm-hmm. press conference. Very furious about this. But I don't know what defense you've got of that. You could argue they were saying that Ramos was doing a bit of shirt pulling as well. But still, the defender shouldn't be doing that. It's, no. It just seems so obvious. And I, my understanding is that these the, the shirt pulling it isn't always given in La Liga, but it doesn't mean you should do it, and it shouldn't be punished. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I think I think, and this is where like Sergio Ramos
1: knowing what he's doing factors into it because he definitely sells it. But I think one point that is always a consistent between not being a penalty and being a penalty is does it change. The momentum or the direction of the player, and you can see that Sergio Ramos is trying to adjust to where the ball is going to be, and the jersey being pulled doesn't allow him to do that. And yeah. then I think what he does is waits for the jersey to stop being pulled, and then he goes flying, which makes it seem like that was completely holding him back. And so there is a little bit of acting to it, uh, to some extent. To me, it's the same thing as when a player gets like bumped in the face or sort of deliberately hit in the face. That's going to be a red card, but then they fall down, and it's meant to convey like, oh, I've been hit in the face. Something needs to be done about that, because sometimes if you just get a little knock, that happened in the Man United game. I think Fernand, Bruno Fernandez slapped somebody, and it was not carded <laughs> at all. But if you fall down and make a meal of it, and then VAR looks at it, it's more likely to be given. It's more likely to be a card. So I think that's where Sergio Ramos knows what he's doing, but it doesn't let him off the hook or let Long lay off the hook at all, nor Ronald Koeman either, even if, if he would like to complain about it.
2: So there, we were having this discussion off-air about we the were. dark arts and the greatest practitioner. He has to be the king, right? of yeah. uh, There's no no one gets near to him of what I will call poop housery for the uh, <laughs> um, for the PG version. For the on PG this version, <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, there's a few other people on the field here you could accuse very much of poop housery. Sergio Busquets mm-hmm. was very much a master of that for diving and whatnot. Uh, Jordi Alba can has uh, is, is, is got a dive or two in him, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. Like it, it depends how you define it because poop housery can just be getting away with stuff, but it can also have an element of evil to it. And I think Ramos has got the evil edge, whereas, say, like, I don't know, Olivier Giroud poop-housing his way to a header or uh i don't know neymar <laughs> n- not quite the same kind of evil poop poophousery there no well New- let's look at Newca- newcastle they're a poophousery team they can defend for <laughs> 85 minutes and so- somehow get an equalizer and steve bruce could go, i don't know how we got a point there we can talk about that later if you want but uh, uh it's it's an interesting concept but he I-, I think he is unrivaled sergio ramos in the dark arts
1: as an American, I will never be able to put anybody higher than Rafa Marquez. Uh but <laughs> if I didn't have that bias in place, I would agree with you. Uh because I think the the thing for me when it comes to poop as you have a lovely turn of phrase <laughs> there, um is that like there does have to be that element of like oh you know what you're doing and I don't like it, but I know what you're doing and you're very like it it has to be that moment of like oh I know what you're doing and it's driving yeah. me nuts. Uh yeah. and Sergio Ramos very good at that very good at playing the victim both when it happens to him and when he has maliciously fouled somebody and then it's like what me no that was just a hug what are you talking about and then the sort of icing on the cake is that he takes the penalty as well so it's sort of like (laughs) it's not even just that he's earned it now he's walking back to to the center of the pitch it's he's earned it and he's gonna take it and odds are he's gonna score it and I think that really does vault him up the charts a few spots I think in terms of active players, he is uh, number one for sure.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I don't condone diving or cheating or you know, anything that Luis Suarez might have been accused of in the past, for example. But I give Ramos a pass. In, for many reasons, because he, he's, he's such a warrior. He's yeah. so important to that team. He is quite literally the spine of that team. And, you know, he comes back into the team after they come off the back of two losses and they win a Classico. And he, wins, he scores, you know, what could have been the deciding goal if not mm-hmm. for the late one from Modric. Uh, he, he's so, so important to this team. And then you look at the back end of last season as well where he seemed to score a goal every week. He was playing a striker in some games, it seemed to be. He's just so very important in a team that doesn't have a talisman beside him doesn't have a it doesn't have yeah. a Ronaldo anymore uh Eden Azar is not doing his thing as we've discussed and Karim Benzema he's part of the furniture and is very important but he's not quite the talisman that Ramos is he's so so important to this team and I think he'll be massively missed uh when he eventually uh, steps down I, I I agree with you and I think there are people who are currently smashing their
1: podcast players or what have you because <laughs> they can't stand Sergio Ramos and that we are being sort of like praising of him uh, or just sort of you know I, I would argue correctly evaluating who he is and what he provides I think a part of it for me in terms of why I don't have as much negativity towards him is that I, I don't have a team in the La, La Liga I particularly root for nor do I root for a team that like always goes up against Spain in international competitions or something like that so I don't have that sort of like my own, I'm I'm rooting for my team and he does this thing to my team every single time and I can't stand him, I tend mm. to just watch Real Madrid as a neutral or as, oh, you know, it's going to be them and Barcelona. Let's see what they're doing this weekend. And when you're watching them from a more neutral perspective, you're just sort of seeing what he's doing and being like, oh, yeah, that was probably a penalty. He definitely sold it. But <laughs> you, can, you can appreciate is the wrong word, but you can understand what he's doing while at the same time being like, oh, that is... That is some magnificent poop to continue your uh, your wording. Let's unless there's other players you want to talk about there, because I think we did have the idea of talking about some other ones who are particularly good. I mentioned Rafa Marquez, uh, Diego Costa would obviously be a candidate oh, yeah. for uh, the the pantheon of poop Anybody else that you'd like to throw in there?
2: I'll throw Jordan Henderson in there. Really? I think he. I think he's. what well, we saw in the international break he won a penalty in a fairly ah. dubious manner. I All think right. it's easy for English or English speaking viewers to overlook sort of uh domestic premier league players for that kind of thing but he's pretty bad at that kind of stuff i would i would contest
1: i would i would contest that my shock at you including him is your thesis in in people overlooking uh (laughs) yeah english players and then i would say i've already acknowledged my american bias but uh any player playing against uh, the u.s national team in world cup qualifying uh when they are home in the united states is away I'm gonna say they're also very good at it. Oh, hang chance. on, we haven't
2: we haven't mentioned Pepe. He's still going. Oh
1: yeah, and of course Pepe, Pepe, yeah, who I think is still going solely fueled by that opportunity to annoy people when whenever possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, sh- we should mention other players from this game though yeah. uh, because I did think Sergio Ramos did Sergio Ramos things and was the impressive figure he has been for Real Madrid I thought Kareem Benzema did an excellent job the way he sort of dropped in and kept finding space he facilitates that first goal by dropping in, holding it up, playing in Valverde I thought he was excellent as we have come to expect uh, any other players that you wanted to focus in on either for Real Madrid or Barcelona? I've got one in particular I'd like to talk about for Barca
2: uh yeah before we get to Barca I'll I'll pick out one other Real Madrid player Tony Kroos. Yeah. Who you can pick out in any game because mm-hmm. he's just amazing in every game. I think maybe I've just got a Tony Kroos bias because I love him so much. But I get the same sort of uh warm and fuzzy feeling that Liverpool fans seem to be getting from Thiago Alcantara at the moment where every pass seems to be beautifully weighted and I I just I, I just coo over him whenever I watch him and he was he was great in this one again. I did, like, in that same Michael Cox article I referenced, uh, he was another one who sort of ghosted past
1: Sergio Busquets to create a chance. Mm. And watching that again, he does do that, and it is sort of a similar run to uh, Fede Valverde. But you can also tell that he is not nearly as mobile as Valverde and is almost like, okay, final sprint for this. Like, the ball is played (laughs) in, and he has to accelerate to get on the end of it. And there's just a moment of like, oh, boy, here we go. I I got to get this thing going. Let's see if I can rev it up. And he does. But I, I... enjoyed the being forced into a sprint uh moment in that game for sure but i enjoyed a lot of the other things he brought to the table so well done tony cruz uh, yeah who else ryan um,
2: well tony cruz was much like uh the Liz- uh, uh patty's lizard in the simpsons he was everywhere you want to be he was <laughs> setting up chances he was doing everything he was fantastic the other player i suppose the one you want to talk out for barcelona <laughs> yeah. might be of your yep. uh, uh american disposition i'm bouncing up and down yep I'm, I'm literally bouncing up and down because Sergio Dest
1: <laughs> started a Classico. That's pretty awesome. Even with everything we've said about this Classico, don't care. Still started it. Still pretty hyped. And I think also was really one of their better performers in this game. I think he offered... Yeah. What they needed going forward, I think he did a good enough job defensively. It's it's one of those performances in which he didn't stand out in the wrong way, and that is a a big step in my opinion. But then also there are those little moments. There's a the clip that's done the rounds of him sort of evading pressure with a couple little quick touches and then getting a pass off, and I think getting fouled at the end of it. And that is all very exciting because this weekend for me as a U.S. men's national team fan. Lots of moments of just players trying stuff and backing themselves in a way that I don't think we've had as consistently as a national team I, I saw four different Americans doing or at least three uh, Americans doing very exciting things on the ball this weekend Serginio Dest very much one of them yeah. I have talked a little bit about him Ryan is there anything in particular you wanted to note about his performance
2: I think I agree he was very good the stats here I've got he had the most successful dribbles for Barcelona he had five uh, 42 of his 44 passes were successful uh, he recovered the ball six times only committed one foul and what I would, did note is that um, maybe this lends to the conversation i was having about they're having no formation discipline he did come in field quite a lot and he was getting mm. up quite a lot and i think there was a chance he sort of laid off a messy uh, in the first half which nearly came off but it was it wasn't it wasn't exactly sticking to his flank but it, it worked out very well um yeah he, he was g- a lot better i'd say he was a lot better than his counterpart nacho as well yes, uh, in yes. the nacho was very much quite our position for that first goal uh, <laughs> with my yeah, let's talk about that for a second, then we can go back to Dest. Because I, I have some sympathy for
1: Nacho f- for that uh, for that opening goal for Barcelona, the equalizer, when it was an equalizer. Uh, and it's a great ball. I think you mentioned it earlier. It's a sort of nice like chipped-in ball behind for Jordi Abel to run onto. He squares it for Ansu Fati. The, uh, we go to one-to-one, and yeah, it is sort of Nacho completely switching off, not tracking Jordi Alba, but I do think Antufati plays a a role in this as well, not just because he scores, but because I think Rafael Varane is supposed to be marking him, and in my opinion, from what I saw, seems so concerned about his pace relative to Varane's lack thereof that he gives him a couple yards, and Rafael Varane is about three yards, maybe four yards deeper than the rest of the back line. If he stays with them, Jordi Alba is offside because he does mm. not, then Jordi Alba is on. So I let Nacho off a little bit. That said, when you're just completely ball-watching Lionel Messi and unaware that a person has made a run in behind, it's never that good of a look if you're a defender.
2: And l- let's give Nacho credit, because Jordi Alba was also arguably wildly out of position in that he was far in the field ahead it's, of Lionel Messi. Uh, so true. you could look at it like that as well. I thought Fatih and Des were the two best Barcelona players, uh, obviously, within their relative disciplines. And I'm very excited about Fatty. He seems to be getting better and better, doesn't he?
1: He does indeed. Uh, so too does Dest. The final thing I wanted to point out there, uh, the commentators made a good point of this, that the right side for Barcelona was Serginho Dest, and then Pedri, two teenagers. and And mm-hmm. Real Madrid seemed very aware of that, very... Uh, content to attack down that side to sort of launch long balls into that space when Sergio Dest would drift central. And that's another reason why I think he did a really good job because to some extent I think he was a point that Real Madrid tried to target and didn't really find any joy there, ended up sort of shifting back over to the right side, uh, to their right side, Real Madrid's, or kind of trying to play through the middle, which obviously they found more success with. But I thought that he was able to sort of weather that a bit and not be caught out, not be embarrassed. Again, very positive sign for me and for the U.S. men's national team. Ryan, I'm going to introduce an idea of like any random things. Uh, any other random things from this game you wanted to talk yeah, about? Yeah, um, uh, one little fact
2: that I Please. learned, by the way. Did you know that Barcelona's right midfielder actually does all the cooking at training what? Um he likes to serve up a pedri dish
1: i i i don't i don't even know <laughs> what to do with that <laughs> oh man uh, i'm glad to see that you're going to keep that tradition alive and for listeners Yay! who tweeted saying that they were going to miss the awkward silences after puns were made there you go you get one thanks for that ryan just came to me i had to say it sorry <laughs> Oh, don't apologize. That, that's a key part of this, is that you just have to celebrate in my abject hatred of puns. Um, well, we celebrate that while I recover from that tremendous
0: pun. Thank you for that, Ryan. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Uh, let's talk about today's sponsor, Artifact. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to capture stories about the important people or things in your life. You can think about it like your favorite podcast, but about
2: whatever topic you might want. It's almost like what we're doing here. We have our favorite podcast where we talk about whatever we want. Yeah, but it's but it's for you, (laughs) Artifactor. You can do things like uh, have them interview your parents Mm -hmm. about what their lives are like before you were born, or as a birthday gift your significant other. You can have them interview close friends about uh, their importance, the importance of their relationships. There are tons of ways you can use it. You can have professional interviewers make a podcast just for you. I appreciate the spacing there. Uh, we
1: have done that a little bit ourselves. Uh, you can still go to heyartifact.com slash TSS to hear the Total Soccer Show origin story. You can also go to Hayartifact.com slash Daryl to hear about Daryl's uh, treatment diagnosis. Uh, it's Daryl and his wife, Shannon, talking about that. I think George pulled a clip from that and put that on Twitter, and it was a very nice Uh, little piece about Daryl sort of being prepared for things, which is a nice thing to think about. So if you wanted to hear more from Daryl, and a little bit from me, you could listen to the TSS one, or the uh, Daryl one, or you could create one of your own, as Ryan said earlier, uh, and you can get $40 off that order uh, by using the promo code TSS. If you go to heyartifact.com, when you check out, use the promo code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring today's Weekend Review. Thank you to Borussia Dortmund Oh, I almost said Gladbach there I had to slow it down a little bit for dramatic pause for, uh, I'm going to say winning a game that they would not have won at this point last season. They win 3-0 over Schalke, and I would argue not just because Schalke look historically bad, which they do, but because Dortmund looked very, very good in this game in a way that I don't think they would have in, in times past, which was when met with a defensive team, they got physical, they got aggressive, they created chances, and they found a way to win. Ryan, what did you make of Dortmund's win?
2: Uh, I thought it was very exciting. Obviously, this is uh, Dortmund in top gear in this game, but also disappointing, Taylor, that the Revere derby was this uncompetitive.
1: Yeah, I uh, guess that's. We, maybe we can go there for a moment because we started there with uh, Classico. And you're right that, again, with the sort of like lack of atmosphere uh, that you're not going to get such an intense game. And then the just massive disparity between these two teams at the moment. Yeah, it, it's. I don't know. It's a bit like... Like, like one team being top of the league and one team being almost an amateur team, which is sort of the case. Uh, so it did take a little bit of the, the shine off this one. It took away my enthusiasm just a little bit
2: yeah it was it was just a disappointing performance from Schalke. they obviously came out to sit very deep but i think uh, the analogy i use is that they tried to park the bus but they left all the windows open on those buses uh they had 28% possession in the first half uh i, I just look, look look at the team sheet for them taylor who who do you think is is worthy of this team, I would ask you. Who, is you. who do you think is a superstar in this team? I, I, I like Matondo. A superstar? I mean, I super, Okay. Like, who is worth, worthy of Schalke? I mean, I, I like Matondo. I, I like Sané. I can't think of anyone else I really think he's got to stay in that shirt. Maybe
1: Amin Harit, you could make that argument, though he hasn't had the the best okay. uh, performances so far either. Yeah, no, it's, it's a far cry from what we've seen of them, certainly a few years ago, but even last season. I think Weston McKinney not being there probably removes a little bit of the my sort of love for them or my like reason to enthusiastically support them and mm-hmm. when that's gone the the state of the squad is is kind of laid bare a little bit and i think a 3-0 scoreline laid it further bare
2: it's really troubling for them. They they're minus seventeen goal difference after five games. Admittedly, they probably played the three best teams uh, mm. in the league in those five games. So they they've got room for recovery, but they just look doomed at the moment. It looks they, they look they're putting in a Fulham style season here at the moment. It's quite troubling. <laughs> it um, is. I would say, and I would say that like they this game was really interesting
1: to me because of that fact. Because I think they came out with look. We know we don't have Dortmund's talent. Nobody does, uh, except for maybe Bayern Munich. Uh, But what we can do is be very defensive, cause them lots of problems, try to frustrate them, and hit them on the break. I think that is a thing they would have done last season. I think it's a thing that sometimes Dortmund really struggle to deal with, is when teams pack it in and make you find a way to beat them, Dortmund can sometimes get frustrated. They can take shots from distance. They can just sort of lose that creativity. And what I remember happening to them... A lot of the time last season, especially as they started to fall off near the end, was they would overcommit numbers, get caught, and then it would be 1-0 to, uh, in this case, it would have been Schalke. Then sort of Dortmund press a little bit more, and maybe they concede one more, and suddenly it's a weird like 3-1 loss when it should mm. have been a 3-0 win. And that is, to some extent, what Schalke did this time round. They were very defensive. They had a back 5 and a 5-3-2. That midfield three, I think, was specifically tasked with making sure that Dortmund's midfield three, Delaney, Daoud, and uh, Julian Brandt, were never allowed much time on the ball. They packed it. They had, I think, routinely eight defenders or eight players, Shaka, eight outfield players, in their own box. They really made Dortmund have to find a way through. They wanted to force them out wide and make them rely on crosses. And that Dortmund kind of stuck to it, didn't overcommit, didn't get caught out, but did end up scoring some very nice goals, I think can only be an exciting thing when it comes to both the Dortmund team and fans of them, but also fans of a potential title race.
2: Yeah, and it was interesting. You're right there that they did make it difficult and they did try to sit deep, but they just had no clear chances going forward, did because they didn't, they didn't break no. as much as they should have. I think that was the issue. And you're quite right in saying that a few of, Dortmund's goals were excellent. That first goal, which uh, Akanji ended up rebounding in. By the way, when your two centre-backs score against Schalke, that's yeah. when Schalke are in trouble. <laughs> Akanji rebounds, rebounds that first goal in from a really nice short corner mm-hmm. routine. Like a little, There was a little one-two between Julian Brandt and uh, Guerrero. And it was lovely. This little flick that Julian Brandt did. And it was, yeah, as I say, straight off the training ground. That was a nice way through. And maybe you could argue that Schalke couldn't have done too much about such a well prepared set piece like that. But then the second goal, which uh, Erling Haaland put away with a really, really nice finish, because that's all he ever does those really nice, powerful looking Alan Shearer style finishes. Uh, him and uh, it was Jaden Sancho yep. did this sort of 1 2 in midfield, but they had so much space. Schalke's back line had receded so much, they were allowed to sort of push forward into the box and bully their way in. So it didn't quite work from that. And, and if you look yeah. at the third goal with Mats Hummels uh, getting, getting the header from the corner, that was pretty poor. It was like they'd almost given up at that point because the defending was so poor, uh, Hummels was under very little pressure. And if you watch it again, Erling Haaland, who is nine feet tall, was completely free <laughs> in the box as well when that one came in. So That's so, not good. So yeah, some pretty troubling defending despite it was almost as if they we we held them goalless in the first half. That's the best we could do. Now we're just gonna open the floodgates is what it felt like a little bit to me. I, I agree.
1: And I and I think part of that is when uh like your strongest point is attacked and found vulnerable, suddenly I think you have a lot of questions about the rest of your defenses. And to your point for that first goal, it is a little bit fortunate, I think, for Dortmund, because that shot comes in, it's parried Roughly into the path of a kanji. It's a good finish from a kanji, I would argue. But mm. it is still Shaka defending a corner, having just defended a free kick, which was earned by uh, Gio Reyna. So I think Gio Reyna basically gets all the credit for this goal. Yes. Uh, but it's that Shaka have all their defenders back, have everybody in the position they theoretically need to be in. And then it's just really good work from Rafael Guerrero to dribble in, to play that ball to Julian Brandt. Julian Brandt's return pass is excellent and it sets Guerrero up for that perfect shot. But when you're Shaka, who have sort of defended really well in that bunker and you feel like, okay, we're we're making it happen. We're at the very least keeping this goalless. And then you're sort of pulled apart by individual creativity and better alertness from Dortmund. I think it starts to make you doubt. And I think it starts to catch you out a little bit. And then you have that second goal where they are as you've correctly said, just in a state of complete transition, I would say sixes and sevens, but I forget specifically what that means or where it comes from, <laughs> even though we answered that question at some point. But Holland, yeah, I think he can, he pulls people out, he makes uh, defenders uncertain, and then Jaden Sancho with his run, and then Erling Holland having that weird ability to suddenly run at 100 miles an hour out of nowhere. Uh, I don't know how you defend that. I really don't know how you defend him at all. And this game, to me, I want to talk about Erling Holland a little bit more. As we tend to do on this show. But I just, the more I watch him, the more like incredible he is, the more fun he is. I don't really know what else to say, but. He just has so many aspects to his game if you want to like you know like limit the opportunity for him to have the ball at his feet, fine. he will beat you in the air, he will outrun you to things. He will knock you off the ball, he can defend, but then in that second goal that he drops in, holds it up for a good five seconds until Jaden Sancho is able to get forward and then mm-hmm. combines with him and ends up scoring and not just scoring but then at full speed, like stopping on a dime and shipping the goalkeeper it's it's just his skill set is is absurd. For how big and strong he is. Uh, I am so excited that we get so much more time with Erling
2: Holland because I think he's only gonna get better. Uh, and I hope that's the case for Dortmund as well. Yeah, he is. Quite literally, as you say, the full package. You can't really fault Erling Haaland, apart from his really, really dangerous goal celebrations. I assume that's why Man United haven't bought him yet, because they can't afford the insurance when he decapitates <laughs> someone with one of his uh, oh, man. over-enthusiastic... I am uh, not excited about those stories at
1: all, I have to say. <laughs> that feels like more like, we're definitely going to side him this time, though, the way they definitely signed Jaden Sancho last
2: time. Yeah, Sancho <laughs> playing very well as well. I'm sure that feels nice for you, Man United fans, yourself included, um, Yeah. So I-, I suppose the question for you is, how soon before he's playing for United or Real Madrid, and how soon before he's really in Ballon d'Or contention? Because to me, maybe I'm overegging it, but it doesn't feel that far away. No, it doesn't. Uh, I, I would be, I don't think he'll leave in January, I,
1: I, unless the wheels fall off for Dortmund or Lucien Favre does get eventually sacked. Unless there's sort of chaos there as long as things seem to be stable, I think he stays there for at the very least the end of this season. But yes, if you have Real Madrid looking to retool and get their attacking options better, and maybe you're looking for a replacement for Karim Benzema, I think there'll be offers there. Mm. Man United, I think uh, maybe as well. Maybe even Man City. That also feels like a thing that Pep Guardiola, Guardiola wouldn't mind trying to figure out if he is still there. Which I think. he Do you think will he's be. a pet
2: player though? I'm not sure he's a pet player. I think we had this discussion before. He's too much. He's too Latin esque for me. Oh, that's right, and that could scare him off a little bit. But I think, regardless, he makes
1: sense for a lot of different teams. I also think a lot of the Man United reporting has been about the release clause that he has, which is in the – somewhat modern era not in the COVID era but generally speaking a very realistic release clause for a player of his talent so I think there will be many offers I think it will be up to Dortmund to decide what fits best Mm. but I think yeah as long as he keeps it going the Ballon d'Or conversation probably not that far off I wouldn't be surprised if he's in like the top 10 this year
2: Because we all care about the Ballon d'Or in this team sport. This team sport, we we all care about about the individual accolade because it's the most (laughs) important thing Grouchy Ryan says. Yeah,
1: I'm fine with it. I do not love talking about it. I do love talking about other players. like I want to spotlight uh, two, Rafael Guerrero, who we've already mentioned briefly, but I thought he was incredibly impressive. I thought he did an amazing job uh, because Dortmund have to change their approach a little bit due to some injuries and then some positive coronavirus tests. They don't have enough fit centre backs to play in a back three as they would have preferred to do. They go in a back four. Rafael Guerrero doesn't look out of place at all and gets two assists because I guess he doesn't get the assist but he gets the shot that leads to the first goal. I count that. He has the Corner kick for corner, yeah. the goal at the end. So I think he deserves credit for that. But just... He he just battles, man. He knocks people off the ball. He keeps plays alive. And he extinguishes counterattacks just as they're starting to look dangerous. He comes flying in and makes a play. I thought he was spectacular for Dortmund I thought uh Gio Reyna was also really really exciting he I think got dispossessed more than I wanted to see on a couple of occasions but I also think that's a thing similar to Christian Pulisic for Chelsea I think Lucien Favre is okay with that because playing against Shaka, who are really defensive I think he wanted his players to take some risks not maybe not too many maybe not leave the team exposed and I don't think Reyna really did that but I, I liked seeing him sort of playing on the half turn, turning and going at people, trying to take people on, trying to kind of catch people in transition. Uh, he's another player, similar to what I was saying with Dest, where I just saw him trying stuff and trying to create and being confident on the ball. And it, once again, had me very excited for him to be playing for the U.S. national team. So I thought he was quite good. But again, I have more of a bias there. Ryan, what did you make of either of those two gentlemen, or both of them, if you prefer?
2: Uh, very impressive, Rainer, once again. I've not seen him have a bad game in a Dortmund show, I don't think. I think he had a headed chance to... Put the put Dortmund ahead as well, which uh, wasn't far off target. I'd say I'm just very excited about that sort of attacking midfield area for Borussia Dortmund as well. Julian Brandt, I mentioned him earlier, but and that that flick for that first game, uh, first goal, which you mentioned also, he's just he just looks very self assured, doesn't he? I think he, he's yeah. always a really really reassuring presence for Dortmund when he's on mm-hmm. the field as well. And he was one of the players yeah. who got subbed off in the second half when uh, Dortmund started to withdraw their weapons when they realised <laughs> they didn't need them much anymore. But uh, I, I, w- I enjoy watching him.
1: I will admit going back and rewatching and I just I forgot how late some of those players were on the pitch and it was cool to continue to like oh oh we're still here oh he's still there. Oh he's still there. Oh he hasn't <laughs> been pulled yet. Oh this is exciting. Like yeah, I always enjoy when the players uh stay on because it means positive things and it makes me smile.
2: There we go. Wonderful stuff. <laughs> Everyone's smiling <laughs> except about. those shulk fence right now.
1: Yeah, a little bit of that. But uh I don't know. We'll, we'll probably have Manuel Vates uh, on at some point to talk about the Bundesliga again. And when we do, we'll talk about 17th placed Schalke. One point from the first five games. As you Yikes. said, though, schedule a little bit of a challenge. Uh Anything else? Any other random pieces you wanted to talk about from this one? I'm contented with our discussion of this game, and we may progress. All right, then I am going to change it up a little bit because I have a feeling the Man United-Chelsea game will take longer than people might expect. So I want to go to Man City-West Ham, if that works for you. Oh, do you? Let's do that. I do. exciting. Because this was uh, another one that sort of felt like it was different than last season. For Dortmund, that was a positive. For Man City, at least for me, more of a negative. That I feel like last season they would have those games of like, oh, they got a draw here, but then they won the next one 5-0. Oh, they like got a loss here, but then they won four in a row. This felt like a game that they would get a result, that they would find a way past West Ham. And they didn't. It finishes in a one-on-one draw. It sort of further asks questions of this Man City team of the depth of talent they have, and maybe of Pep Guardiola a little bit. Ryan, you have followed up Man City more closely than I over the years. D- does this team sort of still spark that that joy? Do they? Do you still see that level of confidence in this team, or are you starting to see cracks?
2: Hmm... I don't. It's, it's a good question because if you compare this team to the team of two years ago, it is not as good. Mm-hmm. And I think there's lots of elements where you could point to. And I, I say this again and again. I think they really missed having Fernandinho as a presence there. He was so important to Pep Guardiola's system. And Rodri, yeah, he's he's doing a job. He does a slightly different job, but but uh not quite the same. I think they. What maybe one of the issues they have currently is that they haven't quite ably replaced David Silva in midfield either. I don't think they've quite figured that mm. out yet. And. Uh, Phil Foden is very good presence in the middle and, you know, works well in tight spaces, but he's not quite the same. I'm trying to put my finger on it because this is a difficult question to yeah. see because Pep, Pep has all the money he wants. He has all the, He still has his system, which he believes in. I think maybe there's the element that the team is a bit less intense than it mm-hmm. used to be. Maybe there's something mental about it. Um, can, I, can I
1: give you my take, and you can tell me what you think of it? Okay, well. All right. Because uh, cause I'm aware, again, you know, Man United fan, I'm not. I don't think my bias is showing here. I think I'm just genuinely confused because... Similar to, that, to what we've already talked about with Classico, that like both of those teams are teams that I'm used to being mildly afraid of. And so when you have two teams that you I am normally afraid of playing each other, it's like, oh, this is going to be really exciting. And so we didn't really have that with Classico. Similar with Man City here, that this is a Man City team under Pep Guardiola with the talent they have, the money they have. I am consistently like, oh, they're going to win again. Of course, they're going to kind of destroy everybody. And right now we're talking about a Man City team who are in 13th, eight points from five games. Not a thing we expected. Mm. Uh, I will not take full credit for this one a few different people including some folks at the Athletic have already written about this but I do think a lot of the problem is moving away from that thing that made Man City so dangerous which was the having players wide Leroy San on a touchline Raheem Sterling on a touchline yeah and then it was that like they get into the box. Oh, he's going to shoot now. Oh, no, he's going to square. And then he's going to square. And now it's a tap in at the far post. And you had this sort of interplay and lots of little quick passes inside the opposition box that I think pulled people out and created spaces. I think I don't really know why the Leroy thing doesn't work out. He is now gone. I think Benjamin Mendy, I think at the time, used to be too attacking. Now I feel like they need somebody to be attacking. Yeah. But instead, you have Jao Cancelo as your left back who's right footed. You have Raheem Sterling as your left winger who's right footed. And to some extent, I think he is more okay with them being inverted and sort of attacking directly and going more central, but it doesn't leave you a lot of width. It doesn't like really cause defensive problems because it doesn't pull them out that much. And I think that left side and the inability to create chances the way they have in the past is an issue. If they're Working on it deliberately to get better at it, so that they can compete next season or in the second half of the year, maybe less of an issue if it's something they're developing. But right now, it seems like a problem as opposed to a developing solution. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And I'm thinking about that left side, I think Zinchenko did a very good job and has done a very good job on that left True. side as well. So he's he's a he's an attacking presence. Uh, that they might have missed and you you make a good point about Sterling being out there on the left you could argue that Riyad Mahrez is supposed to do that job as a a wide player Mm -hmm. up top maybe he's just not been performing as well as he should have been maybe that's just individual you know not Mm -hmm. not quite living up to what he's uh, to to his task there I think a really big issue and this is something that's reasonably obvious to say is the finishing and we've brought Mm -hmm. this up we've brought this up over several weeks and we, I think I made the point that imagine if City did have Erling Haaland. I know I've made the point that he maybe isn't a Pep Guardiola player, but someone who always is guaranteed to finish and finish well because that seems to be a real problem this City team has and particularly a lot of people have pointed to Raheem Sterling not quite having the the, the, mm. the final product. But even, you know, when Kevin De Bruyne came on, he, he misplaced a few passes. He wasn't quite as pinpoint as you'd expect from him. So, I don't know, it just seems like things aren't firing with this team and you can't expect the team to be at the absolute top for many years and years. So maybe there's an element of it running its course a little bit. Maybe there's an element of other teams figuring out Pep Guardiola a little bit Mm -hmm. by this point because he hasn't changed up too much from his uh, from his philosophy and uh, maybe we credit David Moyes for having figured out and credit to him for, for yeah. having having a um, put on this performance so th- I think there's a lot of little things going mm. on with Manchester City causing these problems and I mean I don't know how they get fixed this season necessarily say if Gabby Jesus comes back that might help things uh, in the attacking from an attacking perspective but it doesn't help the problems you've outlined there with the wide play uh, and and the midfield still you know missing David Silva and not having the same defensive midfield presence as they used to have that's still an issue I'll say I'm still I, I still think they're generally pretty good in defense I think Ruben Diaz is settling in very well I think Eric Garcia is getting better with every game he he was very good actually I thought um, uh, Eric Garcia had a really good challenge on Mikel Antolio uh, later on in this game uh, I think he had a couple of shots as well and Ruben Diaz got right up there a few times as well I think he was he was ahead of Sterling and Aguero that was uh, early on in the game when he got a he got onto the end of a long ball it would have been a problem if there was a break at that point but hey it looked good um, so I think this, they're not they've not got problems across the field Taylor but there are as I say yeah. lots of niggling little things that have contributed to this downturn
1: yeah. And and I think like I, I agree. And I think that there are still solutions and I think that they're still a very good team. I would argue their goal itself comes from sort of the thing I was talking about that it is uh it's uh, Phil Foden with the goal but he is like sort of staying central but holding his position Jacques cancelo gets around uh the the right side and is able to play that ball in with his left foot and it is more that traditional city goal that we've come to expect mm. so I think the pieces are still there they can still do it maybe it is just that some of these players uh this was another point from an athletic piece that like if you're as intensive a manager as Pep Guardiola is, if a player isn't fully bought in, they're going to start to maybe tune out a little bit or they're just going to get like, oh, yeah, I've heard this this speech five times already. We've been here for so many years. Yeah. that That's where you've got to freshen things up a little bit potentially, even if it is an important player. The question I, I keep going back to is the freshening up of the managerial position because I can't – I really just cannot think – and I promise this isn't a clickbaity thing. It's a genuine – question i have for you is like i cannot imagine a world in which pep guardiola is ever sacked that hasn't been discussed that hasn't been a thing that anyone has even mentioned that i know of what do you think it would take for man city to be like all right you know what this isn't working like they would have to be in the relegation zone right
2: i think anything yeah anything less than top six going into the latter part of the season definitely would cost it oh yeah I don't think he gets this. I think he um, he admits himself he was very lucky to get a second chance after his first season when he had a pretty low finish. It was his lowest finish with any team, I think, at that point. And I get the feeling to answer your question: if Mauricio Pochettino's agent calls Manchester City and does some sweet talking, that could really accelerate things as well. They
1: did. They did. I saw a quote from uh, Mubarak. I think it was saying that like there are six candidates right now that Mm. like could. Like, basically, if Guardiola, this was more about him not, like, uh, signing a new deal, walking away at the end of the season or something like that, who would they look for? And he said there are six candidates who are, like, of his level or at that level. And I started making a list, and yes, it began with Pochettino for sure. It, it sort of fell off pretty quickly. I, I don't know if he meant available people or if he meant just people in general, because if it was mm. people in general, Jurgen
2: Klopp is on there. But I would not argue that he is a candidate for Man City anytime soon. I would, uh, yeah, I think the pigs would fly before Jürgen Klopp (laughs) crossed over to the City of Manchester Stadium. Not so sure about that.
1: Uh, We have one more Manchester team to talk about. Any other uh, pieces from this game you wanted to mention, Ryan?
2: Uh, let's maybe just give a little round of applause for West Ham, who, yeah. uh, who, who are getting almost as many points with David Moyes uh, in present at games than when he wasn't there. Um, so v- very good stuff from them again. Their system seems to be working very well. Antonio is uh, playing above himself, mm-hmm. I would argue, at the moment. Declan Rice for me seems to be the real fulcrum of this team they're really impressive performance from him in this game I ran his stats 100% pass accuracy four recoveries four interceptions 33 tackles and one uh, two out of two take-ons uh, he, he, I think is, is kind of the secret yeah. sauce of this team. Very impressive. I,
1: I agree. Every now and then you'll hear those stories about like a team that signs a new player and there are those, uh, performance incentives of score this many goals or play this many games. And as they get close to it, if it's a, it's a maybe, you get the re- or you get the idea that it's maybe an incentive that the team didn't expect that player to meet, and it's like we got to pay him two million if he scores two more goals. Well he's not playing for the rest of the season, <laughs> and like Declan rice isn't certainly isn't there with West Ham, and I'm saying this mostly in jest, but there are times when I'm just like you can tell that West Ham like the the board like please stop playing so well we don't want this many phone calls in January. Can you just maybe have like a game or two that you're bad, but we still win so that uh, we don't have as much interest because I'm with you that the stronger he looks, the better he looks, and the more other teams in the league especially other teams in the league with money seem vulnerable in the middle of the field seems like maybe West Ham are going to be getting some phone calls in January just a
2: guess were you trying to make me sympathize with West Ham's owners there for a second
1: no good call let's never do that (laughs)
2: let's never do that
1: instead let's move swiftly away from them this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official
0: beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before
1: to talk about Credible. Credible Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. That is what they do. What they also do is sponsor the Total Soccer Show, which is why we're talking about them right now. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit from Credible because it allows you to potentially get a lower rate, which saves you money, uh, or lower your monthly payment, which means you could get more money in your pocket, or you could get debt-free faster, or you could even consolidate all of those different loans into one more manageable piece.
2: That's right, tay Some benefits of using Credible to refinance your student loans are that you see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders. That means more than one, baby. Whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates. And it only takes couple minutes of your time to check the rates and checking rates does not impact your credit rating do you know they're very confident credible taylor you know how confident they are how confident are they ryan Bell? i'll tell you they're so confident they've got the best rates they'll give you 200 bones that's what we call dollars in england if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere that's 200 dollars. if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere they never sell your data either so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of other lenders credible yum Please visit
1: Credible.com slash TSS. I'm still laughing from the yum. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS. And when you refinance your student loans uh, via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. Fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you are eligible for. Again, that is Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving. Uh, message from Credible Operations, Inc. Not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com TSS for details. Thank you to Credible for sponsoring today's episode. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, We're going to talk about Man United, Chelsea now, and I want to say one more time, I'll say it many, many other times, but thank you to Daryl Grove, who was a big proponent of not putting out negativity, not being reactionary, and was an influence on me not tweeting negative things about this game, because watching it live, I was not thrilled about Manchester United's performance uh, or the results. Watching it again last night with a Manhattan, that helped, Uh, but being less emotional, I thought this game actually was better than I had initially uh, thought it was. Ryan, I'm wondering where you are on this one. Did you find it particularly bad, or did you think it was maybe better than some of the outrage has suggested?
2: I did not find this as bad as Twitter was telling me I should have found it. (laughs) I I quite agree with that. Same page. Yes, it was a nil-nil. Yes, this was a game where we're expected two bad defences to make it five-five. Uh, so why did we not get any goals out? Of yeah. this? We both. I mean, you could paint it that this was two teams who were scared to lose and they didn't. But I thought this was actually a really interesting game. I thought it was very interesting from what Chelsea were doing defensively with the with the back three going back to uh, you know how they won a league with a back three and uh, lots of good individual performances uh, from Chelsea. One interesting point which I heard on another podcast was that. The back, th- the back line, all speaking French, including Dave asper from oh. his time in League 1 as well. And that's really helped sort of their communication, which is interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I'm with you though, because I I sort of
1: was expecting this to be a little bit more open because of the uh, defenses or lack thereof at times for both of these teams. And mm. instead, I came away thinking that maybe Frank Lampard is a better manager than we're giving him credit for. Yeah. Uh, I thought Manchester United... We're fine. I have reasons for why I think they, that they didn't look as effective going forward. But I think the way Lampard set this Chelsea team up, you mentioned the back three. I don't know if he planned for the Frenchness, but I think that that was a, a thing that certainly probably helped. But I think, for example, uh, he gets, he got lampooned. He got a lot of criticism for going with Conte and Jorginho over mm. maybe Kovacic or somebody else. But I think the plan was to have those two trade-off nullifying Bruno Fernandes. And you could watch it in the first 20 minutes or so. It was really interesting to me to see how much Conte and Jorginho were communicating and constantly checking and passing him off and making sure that somebody was aware of him. So much so that Bruno Fernandes just starts drifting wide. He starts trying to find space. He drops in or goes wide. McTominay and Fred playing as that kind of pivot in the four-two-three-one for Man United – their job is to stay deeper and kind of build from deep so they're not going to get into the attack so suddenly you have just got this big hole in the middle of the field for Man United that is created by the defensive work in Conte and Jorginho but it's a big part of why I think Man United really struggled and little things like that from Chelsea that I think worked really well yeah we're, were, were smart from Frank Lampard yes they didn't score and we can talk about why that was the case but I, I did see this game as Frank Lampard looking at the threats of Manchester United realistically evaluating them and then adjusting his game plan to pretty effectively nullify them.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's reasons to question Oligana Solskjaer, which maybe we can move on to in a minute. But I think sure. Frank Lampard deserves praise for the setup of this team, as you say. Uh, and, and, you know, lots of good performances. Thiago Silva was, I think, maybe his, his best performance for Chelsea so far. I really like the wide players, Reese James and, and Chilwell, when those yeah. positions mm-hmm. looked very good. Uh, and, and as you say, Jorginho and Canty in the middle were providing, they, they were there for a reason and there was logic to doing it. But perhaps that was kind of the downfall as you say yeah. and, and uh, uh, the, the, the criticism which has come across here is the use of Kante in the mm-hmm. you know he's being used as an eight where he maybe should be a six and what I found and I think what a lot of people found this isn't necessarily an original thought it's that that was affecting the transition from defense to attack whereas traditionally mm-hmm. this is a very free-flowing team Chelsea obviously uh, get, getting forward Kante was kind of snubbing out a lot of the uh, through no fault of his own was kind of uh, you know not having the creativity yeah. to get those balls forward uh, to to the, to the front three players so that was kind of the issue with this Chelsea team I think was the reason that they didn't uh, get on the score sheet the other reason I'm gonna hammer him again Timo I, mm-hmm. I I think that he I don't like his decision making and I think once again there's a few examples in this game where he I don't think he made the right Move or or played the right par- pass, and mm-hmm. I think there's certain defenses maybe he just can't get along with. And this United one, for all its faults, was one that sort of he he, he just wasn't very compatible with. Arguably, did you see him like getting
1: knocked around or just not getting clear cut chances? Was there anything in, in like particular that you saw that you were like, oh, that's got to be better, or they're just really
2: effectively dealing with that? I think yeah, he was he was dealt with. I think is what it was, mm-hmm. and I think what okay. his dec- yeah, his decision misses. making when he is on the ball. I think there are passes I see. I'm making myself sound like a genius, but I think there are passes that he could make that he doesn't. I think there's times he shoots when he maybe could have taken another touch and that kind of thing. I, I, I know he's a good player, but I'm still, I've got my doubts about him still. Maybe I'm just yeah. being overly negative, but I saw it again creeping in in this game. So I want to talk
1: about Chelsea's attack and why I think it it struggled a little bit. I wanted to focus in on one player you mentioned previously, Reece James, who I thought had an excellent game yep. um because I talked about what I think Manchester United wanted to do, which is play through Bruno Fernandes, they could not because of the the marking there. They're forcing him wide. I think the solutions to that that Solskjaer had sort of prepared for were to have Juan Mata, who was playing on the right, drift inside a little bit, but that creates problems in like of itself because then you've got space out wide, everything like that. I think the other thing that they were going for was to have Daniel James on the left be their sort of uh, counterattacking threat, that if Chelsea overcommit and get forward and send those numbers in and have that free flowing attack that we kind of expect that it's going to leave a ton of space behind. And Daniel James very, very fast can exploit that you could, if you go back and watch in the first 25 minutes, man United keep looking for him over the top and they keep not finding him because Reese James focuses so much on either not getting forward or if he does getting back immediately to cover that long ball. And There are so many moments of Daniel James trying to make that run in behind and then just stopping or cutting back because the ball's just not on. Mm. He's being tracked or there's just not enough space for him to run into. And I think, again, that was Chelsea's defensive plan, just completely shutting down what Man United were going for. I think, as you've already sort of alluded to, that defensive plan, though, then, doesn't allow you to do a lot of the attacking things you want to do. And I think, to some extent, their plan was We're going to be defensive. We're not going to get many chances. We're going to sort of try to counter their counters, and when we get one, make of it what you will. So I think we saw a lot of direct running from Timo Werner. We saw a lot of direct running from Christian Pulisic. I saw Mm -hmm. that, that when he picked up the ball, he was going. I really liked, again, what I saw from him in this game. I thought he was trying stuff and taking people on. You definitely get the impression that he has been told, if you lose the ball four times but get through and score once, that is fine. And he seems (laughs) to have embraced that. So I, I felt like Chelsea's attack... Was a bit more frenetic and a bit more stressed, almost like, we're not going to get many chances. We've got to do our best with this one. And anytime you're thinking, like, oh, we got to do our best. I hope this works, as opposed to, like, we're going to score this goal. It's just a very different mindset. And I think that's maybe partially to blame for why they weren't as consistent or effective going forward.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think Polisic had, had a good game. There was a moment where he sort of stole the ball from Fred and uh, got a good shot off. And yeah, 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 yeah. That was a heart in the mouth moment when I think, was it McTominay who went in on his ankle? Um, oh, man. Yeah. that
1: that was that was one that almost because it's just instantly for for Americans I think it brings up Johnny Evans and Stu Holden and there was yeah. just a moment of like I need I need a Man United midfielder to not be a villain again can we not have that happen please <laughs> luckily it seems like he's okay-ish definitely limping for a while there but nothing too severe that i know of uh so i'm happy yeah. about that we haven't talked much about manchester united um is there anything you want to talk about there or anything else you want to talk about with chelsea
2: yeah just a little bit more on chelsea if you don't Truth. mind uh, uh reese james as you say was excellent on that flank and i thought his counterpart ben Chilwa was very good as well sort of joining in in the attacking movements i think he had a couple of good link-ups with mm. uh, kai havertz as well in this game uh can we just Quickly touch on uh, Mendy, 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 how yes, do you want to please. pronounce it, the yes. goalkeeper. Yes, 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 uh, thank you. Kepper is done now, surely, right? Yes, this is a really good game for uh, Edouard Mendy, Uh apart from the moment where he almost passed the ball into his own net. Whoopsie-daisy. Can uh, I, Let me
1: jump in there, because I th- I'm with you. That In that moment, I was like, oh... No. And I saw all those tweets of like, is the position just cursed? Is something wrong? But I think, <laughs> to your point, rather than that being a moment that now is going to give Frank Lampard some doubt, and indecision, I went back and watched that about five times, that whole sequence, to see what he does. And he... Uh, one of the things I really liked about Mendy, sorry, I've completely hijacked this, but I'm so hyped to talk about him. Um, <laughs> when I was watching footage of him before he signed for Chelsea, one thing that I really liked was his decision making. That if he's coming, he is coming. If he's staying back, he is staying back. Mm. You don't see him sort of like commit and then back off or back off and then commit. And I was wondering what would happen having just made that mistake. Is he going to come flying out and try to be the hero? No. He trusted his defenders. He saw them and kind of adjusted his footing and everything. But I liked that he wasn't emotional in responding to that and then is just very calm, slows it down when he needed to. I will stop hijacking your point. I will have more to say about him once you're finished. But I, that moment I thought could have been a crisis moment and instead I think he handled it as best he could for having made a sort of embarrassing moment to begin with.
2: Yeah, and I, I, would, I would contest if Kepper was in goal in this game People wouldn't have been calling it a boring game because it would have no. been three or four nil. Yeah. I think did United have something like four shots on target, and he had three really good saves, yeah. including that last minute one from Marcus Rashford. I which thought was that was a, in for sure. Yeah, yeah. Keppel was never getting to that. Absolutely never getting to that. So that was that was really impressive. He saved the points for Chelsea, and I think you know. This game had 14, uh, Man United had 14 shots in total. Chelsea had six. Uh, and I think that maybe Mo- mondi, Mendy mondi made the difference in this one because mm-hmm. it plays into this narrative that it was a bad game. It wasn't. Both teams had nice attacking movements. Both went into the opposite thirds doing good stuff. Both were, uh, you know, uh, good at defending, decent chances either end. And I, I-, 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 I think this is a good game and Mondy was arguably a part of that. And I can't stop saying Mondi now. Yeah, Sorry, it's Mendy. It's fine. You say however you want to, buddy. Uh, the other one that I
1: wanted to focus on uh, with with Mendy Mondi uh, was uh, many. Uh, Chelsea have a corner. They send all of their, their their players up. They lose out on the corner, and it is cleared all the way down the field to uh, Mendy Mondi. And he, <laughs> you can tell he wants to play it quickly. He has a moment of like, "Who am I going to play it to?" And then he stops, puts his foot on the ball, and starts backing up and and gestures for everybody to come back. If you watch. The entire Chelsea team reset. Everybody gets back into their shape that they need to be in. And then he lets play resume. And it's a small thing. It's an obvious thing. But it's an important thing because Man United are so effective on the counterattack that there might have been that tendency to, oh, I'm going to try to force this ball in and we're going to keep that attack going. And then you turn that pass over. I do feel like that's a thing that maybe we would have seen Kepa do because he's trying to make things happen. He wants to make plays. And then you're caught out. And then you're... Countering the counter leads to you being countered, and that is really a vulnerable position. So I, I was really impressed by him. Well done to Mendy Monti. All right, should we pile in on United then? You ready? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I really don't have that much to say. I look forward to your criticisms because I think for the reasons we said about Chelsea, they really nullified United's game plan. Mm. And, and this felt a bit like how a nil-nil can be an interesting game. I wouldn't say Manchester United were as interesting as Chelsea, but that might be my pessimism. So I turn it to you to, to hear what you have to say about them.
2: Yeah, maybe I was, maybe I was uh, teeing up a little too much drama there because I didn't yeah. think they were that bad uh, apart from mm-hmm. philosophically to have a Manchester United team sit back so much in a home game. Yeah. But you flip that and say it's a good result for Solskjaer to get, you know, not concede a goal against a top six side at home and mm-hmm. have your goalkeeper not have too much to do. Yeah. I think that's kind of a good result in some respects in the context of the Solskjaer reign, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, I think also when you look at that starting 11, many jokes about how the bench could probably beat that starting 11. <laughs> and if you look at who's on there, uh, starting this game on the sidelines were Cavani, Pogba, Greenwood, Van de Beek. Uh Dean Henderson, and Matich, uh Tuan Zebe. Like we there's a lot of talent there. Mm. Uh and I and I sort of looked at that starting eleven and thought, this is gonna be a defensive game. It doesn't re- didn't spark joy, put it that way. Fred and McTominay is a is a workable partnership. I think they're good defensively uh and, and did a good job in this one, but certainly aren't gonna create that many attacking opportunities. If you nullify Bruno, if you don't let Daniel James counterattack, I think options become pretty limited pretty quickly.
2: So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Why why do you think Solskjaer set up this game the way he did with like say Fred and McTominay in the middle there? Why not have a back four, mm-hmm. Fred in front of them, Bruno and Paul Pogba slightly ahead of Fred? It's a great question. Uh,
1: I I really don't have a concrete answer. I can give you my like <laughs> speculation, which is just that he was worried about getting overrun by that Chelsea attack. Maybe didn't think Paul Pogba was going to give him the defensive cover or the defensive work rate. Uh, and so he he went with the Fred McTominay partnership and, and hoped that that would get the job done, which it did from a defensive standpoint. But it still is odd to me that Paul Pogba... Being fit could have played, but doesn't come in until about the 58th minute or so, 60th minute or so. I Yeah, I, I'm with you that I think you could have put in there and, and caused Chelsea more problems. So maybe the answer is just that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was happy for this to be a nil-nil draw against yeah. Chelsea and happy to be more defensive and maybe save that attacking talent for the next game. That would be my, my guess. Do you agree, disagree, or have your own thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm willing to agree
2: with that. Can I follow up? Yes, please. Van der Beek
1: that why, one not working. Where does about. he fit
2: in that Where does he fit in that system because I can't yeah. quite figure it out. Someone's got to be unhappy in this situation, right?
1: Yeah. I, and he probably is. Uh there was that shot of him looking pretty forlorn in the rain on the sidelines. We should note there was a torrential downpour. It held the ball up. It made players kind of slide around and lose that's their footing. A, that probably a, the,
2: the, the, That's what happens when you play a game in Manchester. Yes.
1: <laughs> but I think maybe Maybe hopefully explains a little bit of why they didn't look as good. Uh, I, I, but I do think that you're right, that like I expected to see him at all <laughs> Like at some point. I wouldn't have been surprised to see him start. It is, I guess, pretty early on in his career at Manchester United. I didn't really go in for that whole, like, Ajax are winning 17-0 and he's not there. He's sitting on the bench. It's like, yeah, it's a different thing. It's a new system. He's figuring it out. I'm I'm guessing that we see more of him. The schedule for Manchester United over the next week is uh, home to RB Leipzig in the Champions League, home to Arsenal in the Premier League, and then uh, a week after that Leipzig game, uh, away to Istanbul, Besiktas here, before a, an away game at Everton. So. A tough schedule coming up, and that's the only other thing I can think is that with that number of strong opponents, I mean, all of those teams are going to cause varying degrees of problems for Manchester United. Uh, Maybe it's just that he wanted to preserve some of that attacking talent, including Paul Pogba, for some of those games. Maybe that's the uh, outlier explanation, but if then Pogba doesn't play in the next game and Donny Vendebake doesn't play in the next game... I'm scratching my head a little bit more.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm scratching my head also about Paul Pogba in general and this sort of new role as an impact sub. Mm-hmm. And this notion that maybe Manchester United are better without him in the team. Yeah. I'm, I'm drawing a parallel here to uh, to a gridiron team, the Carolina Panthers, my local mm. NFL team, who have arguably become a better, more solidified team without Christian McCaffrey, their best player, one of the best players in mm-hmm. the league. Is there a, a parallel there in... Pogba not being uh, the 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 team not being focused around Pogba which is something yeah. that was an intention at one point right
1: yeah i, I would agree with that uh Carl Anka when he was on the show last uh, i think it's throughout the idea that like Manchester United when they bought Paul Pogba sort of maybe deluded themselves into thinking they were buying the entire Juve midfield Mm -hmm. and expected him to perform all of those roles. And in reality, he was able to do a lot of what he did because he had Arturo Vidal making plays and he had Andrea Pirlo moving the ball around and any number of other world-class midfielders coming in and helping out. And, I I do think I have come around to the idea that he is he is part of the problem. Not necessarily he is a problem, but I think how do you play him, how do you get the best out of him, is an issue for Solskjaer. And to some extent, I think if they sold him and had a hundred million pounds to spend on, say, Jaden Sancho, that might make Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's life just a little bit easier, because it's a wide attacking threat that gives you kind of a bit more on the ball than, say, Daniel James, certainly gives you more pace than Juan Mata. And leaves you to play your other midfield options like Fred, like McTominay, like Donny Beek, whomever else you want to go central. I, I do think he doesn't really know what to do with Paul Pogba, and I think until he does, it's going to be a looming issue. And as we talked about with Pep, looming issues tend to build if things don't improve. As Dave Grohl once said, "Is
2: only getting the best, the best, the best out of Pogba. <laughs>
1: I like that sometimes when you sing, I can tell that you're not fully into it yourself. <laughs> you didn't really belt that one out. You were almost apologetically singing. Is what I I'm worked workshop a
2: lot of stuff on this show. I apologize. <laughs>
1: uh, well, I apologize for nothing because I enjoyed talking about those four games. I don't have much else to say, but I think maybe going forward, it would be good for us to, to limit the number of games we're watching so we can maybe go deeper on just a few. Does that work for you, Ryan? Whatever works for you works for me, <laughs> All right, pal. Well, uh, I think we have done plenty of talking for the day, so we can bring this one to a close. But I want to say again, Ryan, thank you for stepping in as you have and for continuing to be a part of the show and for picking up some of the burden and, you know, giving me a little bit of time to, to figure things out and, and give me some covers. So thank you for that, Ryan. I really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Taylor. I am not sorry about Pedri Dish. It's always a pleasure, never a draw.